You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. In today's episode, Dr. Davis and I are joined by two champions of Christian education. Both Dr. David Handyside and Dr. Damian Ahrens have dedicated their lives to training young people and encouraging parents to that end. Both men have incredible wisdom to share, but we found that they both talked about a state of reliant faith in Christ that creates peace and joy no matter the circumstances. I will admit that at Maranatha, we are for Christian education. I mean, we are a institution of higher learning, but we believe that Christian education begins at the formative level and that it is primarily the responsibility of Christian parents to educate their children, right? And so if we're for Christian higher education, obviously we want to promote and defend the rights of elementary Christian education and secondary Christian education, and we try to make sure that those rights are established and that there is a conviction for Christian education. I preached recently in chapel at Maranatha about having a conviction for Christian ed. And I started out saying to our own students, you might think it's a little funny that I'm preaching this to you who have already chosen to attend a Christian college, but the fact of the matter is they will shortly be out there with their own children making that decision. You know how quickly that turns mm-hmm. around on you, right? <laughs> Go Doesn't from take student long. to dad pretty quickly. And the fact is we've got to make sure that the next generation knows how important this is. While I'm admitting that we are not neutral in this matter, I think it would be important for us to note that neither is the public school system. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article for The Advantage a while back where I called it anything but neutral and cataloged some of the hostilities that exist within the government schools. And they're supposed to be neutral towards things of the faith, and yet that seems not to be the case at all, where... I believe that before God, as a parent, I'm going to be accountable for how my children are raised. And they certainly will make their own decisions in life and as adults will launch out on their own, but it's our responsibility to give them that Christian foundation. So these are good conversations, somewhat heavy at times, and Christian education is not without fault. We certainly can always improve and do better. But at its core, its philosophy is rooted upon the Word of God. And you're going to find that in our conversations today. Today, we are joined by Dr. Damian Ahrens, head of school at Faith Baptist School in Davison, Michigan. Dr. A has been married to his wife, Priscilla, for 27 years. People refer to their six children as the A-team because all their names start with A, Abigail, Andrew, Anna, Allison, Amy, and Alyssa. An avid basketball fan, Coach A has coached for 45 years and roots for the Kansas Jayhawks when not cheering on his own kids. You can always find a mug of coffee in his hand as he strides through the halls of the school, sincerely greeting everyone. I personally have known Pastor A for a long time since I was in grade school. He left my senior year of high school. It was a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Dr. A. So glad to have you here. It is great to be here, Jonathan. Man, it's been a long time, but uh, to to look at what you're doing now is uh, is so exciting for me. 
Oh, it's exciting for me too, because we're actually getting to do the things here in this podcast that you helped instill in me when I was in high school. Oh, praise the Lord. Well, and I'm glad to let you know that we pay good money for <laughs> stories. All right. And so whatever you've got on Jonathan, we will. Absolutely. There's a lot of them. So let's get to know you a little bit. Jonathan said that you are a big basketball fan. And uh, did you play basketball growing up? What what kind of, how did it get in, under your skin that way? I did. My daddy was a basketball coach. So I spent a lot of time playing basketball. I used to shovel off all 90 feet of that little court in Andale, Kansas. And I would play and, of course, went on to uh, high school and played all the sports and then played college ball at a little college called St. Mary of the Plains in Dodge City, Kansas, then Benedictine College hmm. and enjoyed that. Um, I wasn't a great college player, but I really enjoyed it and then went on into coaching and and from there, I've just uh, really enjoyed uh, training other athletes. And uh, I've always loved the game. It's a great game. And, of course, coming from Kansas, you Rock know, chalk. how many national championships, how many conferences, the birthplace of basketball, right? right? I thought that was Indiana. Right. I uh, was told it was Indiana. We nope. don't believe that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Naismith. That's, that's a Kansas Naismith. name. <laughs> yeah. You're a coffee guy. Are you, what is it? Starbucks? Is it, uh, are you in for the fancy coffee or is it just give it to me black or how do you do it? Okay. So our, the, we're at the ministry I'm at now. We have a Jura coffee maker, which is about a $2,000 machine. It mm. grinds it. It has three different levels. And then we add the creamer. So um, there are a lot of coffee enthusiasts like you, Jonathan, who pour over. I'm not quite at that level yet. I'm sort of like the B team. I'm the junior I high see. squad. Yeah. We're coffee in training. <laughs> right. You missed the millennial time frame. Right. right. <laughs> so in, as, a, as a guy that's been involved in ministry, it's curious to me then at some point, the Lord must have really gotten a hold of your heart mm. because you have kind of a Catholic background. Is that right? I do. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. And uh, I sort of, I was a guy that went on all the pilgrimages. I wanted to be a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, I went to mass every single day and uh, confession on Saturdays. And uh, I would say rosaries every time we had a road trip. And it was uh, 1991. I was actually teaching in the Catholic schools for five years. And God got a hold of my heart and mm. broke me. And I was actually in an empty apartment, financially ruined. And I gave my life to Christ and moved to Atchison uh, to this Catholic boarding school and became a residence director and was teaching and coaching at that time. And God brought my future wife along, Priscilla. And so that was really a great experience. And And soon I found myself attending the local Baptist church there and um, started, uh, started going to seminary. A guy named Dr. Carl Herbster opened up a seminary. And so I started going to seminary because I just wanted to learn the Bible. And uh, Priscilla married me, and I said, why did you marry me knowing uh, that I came from a Catholic background? She said, well, you were saved, and every time I said, this is what the Bible says, you would say, I agree. And that was, that was, that was just awesome. And then from there, the Lord has blossomed my relationship with my wife. I was at that boarding school for six years, going to seminary, ended up becoming a director of admissions, traveling all over the world, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Asia, hmm. all those different yeah. things. It was great. Yeah. And uh, it was well, neat. one of the things that we've certainly noticed is that when you're living for the Lord and you have given your life to Christ yes. completely, when you've surrendered that, you're not giving anything up. Life becomes oh. an incredible adventure. And you're describing, you know, going all over the world and those mm -hmm. open doors. And you look back and you think, I never thought I would have the opportunity to do these incredible things. And yet God 
God does that and he provides the resources for it. And, you know, it's not a miserable life to live for God. It's a joyous life. I mean, are you having fun serving the Lord? You know, when I got saved, I quit aging. And I mean that. I tell people (laughs) my energy level went up. Um, You know, it is amazing when you read God's word every day, you are encouraged, you're energized, and um, he has so much that he wants to accomplish through us. And for the first time in my life, when I got saved, I knew that I could have a purpose and God has given me that Greek energy that we talk about in the text. (laughs) And um, I don't know why, but I'm grateful for it. And it's awesome to be alive. That's right. So you mentioned mission right there. Yep. So that's what this podcast is all about, Mm. is talking with people who have intentionally centered their life around a mission that's bigger than themselves. So Dr. Aarons, what is your mission for life? Comes out of the book of Romans. um, And it just means this, that I'm going to be obedient in the faith. I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to serve servant of Christ, obedient in the faith. That's our family mission statement. And we have three things that my family, we focus on. The three most important things in life. One is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, that I'm precious in mommy and daddy in God's eyes. And that preciousness comes out of Psalm 139 says, my thoughts of you are precious more than the sands of the sea. When I talk to people, I can hold a handful of sand and say, God's thoughts. This is just a, a fraction of what God thinks about me. Number three, everyone has a need. Mm. And that drives me because you can talk to anybody anytime and they always have a need. And obviously at first needs the gospel from there. Just, it just, it spreads and, and it can drive, it drives you. And I can attest that that has been those three things I could have written down if I had jogged my memory enough, because that's what you taught us when we were in high school. And I would say that when you apply that everyone has a need, the third thing, your your life becomes looking for people's needs and how to meet them. And at Maranatha, we subscribe to servant leadership. Absolutely. And that means that leadership is just an avenue to have influence on people's lives and for the greater good, for the greater good being God's good, God's glory, their good. So how do you do do that now? Obviously, you're head of school. Um, What does that practically look like in your life? What does that mission look like? Well, every time there's a situation, stop and pray. Mm. Uh, if it's a student, and always quote scripture. The word of God is quick and powerful. Right. One of the things that I love to do the most is when I'm talking to telemarketers or I'm working on uh, some kind of warranty. Wait, you talk to telemarketers? Absolutely. That's a great. First of all, <laughs> you're their worst up, nightmare. <laughs> and you pull you pull up the conversation and say, first of all, how are you today? Okay, now they're reeling because you've asked them. Just recently, we had a conversation with my home warranty company, and we were talking to this guy, and and I said, can I pray with you? And we prayed, and this guy, uh, and we were done. The guy was just like flabbergasted. I said, can I do anything? Can I serve you at all? He's like, no. I said, can I talk to your boss? I want to tell you what a great job. He said, no, absolutely not. He said, this is the greatest day of my entire life because no one has ever prayed with me. And, and I know, and the verse I usually quote is Isaiah 41, 13, for I am the Lord thy God, I will hold thy right hand, saying unto you, fear not, I will help thee. Every single time there's either tears or joy. And that's God's word. That's not Damien. The right. person on the other end of the line has an eternal soul. That's right. And when you talk about being about something in your life that matters, it's other people that matter because they have an eternal existence and they're going to spend eternity somewhere and I, I think in the annoyance, perhaps, of the telemarketing, mm. uh, we have that 
you know, no, I don't want to talk to you. Click, you know, mentality. And maybe there's a, another approach that, uh, if we're sensitive to the Holy spirit, we could see. I, every time I think about a soul, I always think about Isaiah 53, where you have the piercing and the crushing and the violent throwing down of Jesus Christ. And, and what was the response of the father? He was delighted. He was mm-hmm. satisfied in that satisfaction and that delighting is because we can have fellowship with him for eternity. And, and, and to be able to give that message is, is something that um, I needed to hear, and I need to remind myself daily. You know, Paul says, you know, keep this one thing in memory, what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So not, it's not just a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. So in terms of servant leadership, uh, the world even has picked up on servant leadership. You can find hundreds of books on Amazon about servant leadership from people who have, don't know Christ from anybody. And yet they've picked up on the idea that you can kind of manipulate people by pretending to care about them. And that, that's kind of the secular you know, thumbnail version of servant leadership. And yet I think we find something very different in Scripture. What does it look like in your ministry? I think in any person or for a Christian, uh, the greatest among you shall be your servant, your minister. Um, whenever you're out meeting needs or you're looking at somebody that has a need and, and it's giving your time, it's walking beside them, it's praying with them. Um, we have a, we have a little practice at our school when kids are sick, I walk up to them, I have this big old bowl of emojis and they get an emoji and you get to pray with them. And, 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 and people are amazed if you pick up their trash, if you do something and it gives you an opportunity because a lot of times, um, they just, they, they just want to be loved. They want to be encouraged. And when you serve somebody, um, especially if you're in a leadership position, like all three of us are, um, it speaks volumes to them and, uh, it's what Christ did. You know, he, he got on his knees, he washed dirty feet. And of course, the theology behind it is very rich and we're commanded to do that. But th- you all know there's such great joy when we serve, right guys? Right. Yeah. There's, there's no better joy. You know, it's, there's, you know, however that looks, whether it's helping somebody, praying with somebody, calling somebody, texting somebody, sending a verse, you know, uh, people need that. The, uh, the truth is that not everyone we invest in Hmm. even appreciates that. Yeah. And the people who need that help the most sometimes uh, are the least interested in receiving it. And yeah. especially in Christian education, we can end up with uh, situations where the, what, what people need is not what they want. Yeah. And so I don't think that servant leadership just means giving people what they want and being Mr. Nice Guy all the time. I think there's still leadership that goes along with that. Yeah. But how do you balance that? Not just the wins, but I guess from a human's perspective, the losses or the difficult cases and still maintaining a, uh, an orientation of service and leadership. Well, I think the first thing is you always keep the word of God forefront. Um, when I'm talking to people, you're, you're giving a biblical perspective. I love Romans chapter three, verse four. It says, let God be true and every man a liar. First hmm. uh, John, if you receive the witness of man, the witness of God is much greater. So when I'm talking to somebody, Many times we're pleading with them in ministry. We're pleading with them to stay with their spouse. We're pleading with them to to turn away from their sin. We're we're pleading with them, and, and there's real tears. And we see the successes and the losses. But we're we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And God wants us to be faithful. Wow. And here's the bottom line: 
is I, I, that's not my call to judge whether I'm successful. I just go back to the cross. If I'm standing at the cross, the ground is level between me and every single human being. I'm not any better than anyone. And when they see the cross, if, I, if I'm honest, what they're seeing is they're seeing that my life required the, the slaughter of the Son of God in order that I have eternal life. And, and that perspective keeps me grounded, and it keeps me pleading with those families that are struggling. And we've got a responsibility to tell them what Christ would tell them. And the front door is the best door, and you love on them, and you're standing there when they come back, if they come back. When you have a proper view of your own, not just mortality, but your mm-hmm. own sinfulness, it really helps to avoid the pride of looking oh. at someone else and looking down on someone else yeah. and rather to approach them in, in their weakness with your weakness and knowing that the solution in your life was the, the saving power of God and the gospel continuing to play out even beyond just the day of my salvation, but throughout my entire life every day. And to say, I want you to experience that same victory. Yeah. And I, I guess I, in our society, We've become defined by defeat, defined by victimhood, mm. and there's almost a um, uh, a desire to stay defined as a victim mm. and to in a reluctance to overcome and go on to live a joyful, victorious life. And I think as Christians, shouldn't we be the ones that are are representing that you can overcome? the persecution and the difficulty and you know the 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 mistreatment of the world that all of us have experienced at one level or another now that's not to minimize real trauma mm. or to to say that there's not a place for grief and for for dark times in our life but that those should be temporary on the path that continues us towards victory and that, that in that way we have an alternative to the world right and that's you know young people are experiencing difficulty like I've never seen. Anxiety, yes, trauma, abuse, those are real things. And we have to deal with those biblically, but that we have answers. And I think that's what's kind of missing sometimes in the world's philosophy is that you're supposed to identify your victimhood and then just wallow in it the rest of your life. Well, when I was in when I when I was in uh, you know in the Catholic schools or the public schools or or their private boarding schools, um, I could give answers, but now I can give truth. You know, I, I can I can talk to somebody and give them truth. I was thinking about suffering, and, and you think about Hebrews where it says that Jesus learned obedience through the things what they suffered. The suffering is a great school; it's a hardest school, and we all have very dark times that we went either with a child illness or and those those are grounding times in your life. But those suffering, you get to see Christ for what he is. The truths of scripture are crystal clear. And, and they give us the, the power and the strength. And, and by the way, this is a, this is a McDonald's culture, guys. Mm. I, I need everything now and, and waiting on the Lord and being patient is, is, you know, God's under no obligation to answer our prayers immediately. He's going to answer things on his timing to bring glory to his name. Let's talk about Christian education a little bit. And you're in been involved in Christian education pretty much your entire career hmm. and uh, different modes of that, mm-hmm. but uh, primarily at the, the K-12 level. Yes, sir. And, you know, what is your view of the importance, the priority, 
uh, of Christian education? And, and how do you, how do you communicate that to those maybe parents in your, your local area that are considering, should we, or should we not put our kids into the Christian school? Well, so a family comes in, the first thing you want to do is talk about what is Christian education? Well, the natural man receives not the things of God, their foolishness unto him. So a born again believer can receive a Christian education in that. And then once you have that premise, you can begin to talk about Christian education and what it means. And it, it, it is, um, it is something that many families are concerned. Am I going to get as much in a different type of school than I do a Christian school? And I said, well, we have all things pertaining unto life and godliness. It kind of depends on what they mean by as much because Correct. Gonna, <laughs> right? you're going to get a lot of different things <laughs> yes, okay, you are. in a government school. Yes, sir. And in that environment, uh, the question <laughs> is, is it the kind of thing that's going to bolster and, and build your faith or is it the kind of thing that's going to crush and destroy? You know, after COVID, we've had a lot of families interview at our school, and it was interesting that um, you'd ask a child, "So, what do you know about the creation of the world?" We said, "Well, we're we're products of stardust. We, right. you know, we 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 are a product of the Big Bang." And I, and I will tell parents, I said, "Well, first of all, it is a home and a church and a school relationship. We're we're reinforcing what you want to teach at home, but you have been created with the purpose in the image of God." And we have a very strong message for you, how you see the creation of the world, how you see history, how you see all those things. And it makes sense uh, when you teach it from God's perspective. And that reinforcement is going to go in in the light of Deuteronomy chapter six, it's going to go from the time they walk in to the time they take their cleats off after practice. And that whole philosophy, that evolutionary philosophy is so core, there's no such thing as secular education or neutral education, that there is either an indoctrination for this or an indoctrination for that. And the question is, as you alluded to, are you going to base it on truth or are you going to base it on a lie? And when it comes to creation, I think that is a foundational doctrinal difference that that makes a, a big difference. And when I see Christian parents saying, well, we'll send them to public school but you know we're going to talk a lot at home about the things that they're hearing. You can't undo it. That's right. The, the foundation is interwoven <laughs> throughout. The lie is interwoven throughout. And if you say, let's just back up a second philosophically, do you believe it's a sin to tell a child a lie? I think most Christians would say, yeah, I don't, I don't think we should lie to kids. That's right. Okay. Okay. Well, then should we build a lie into the entire educational system that we teach the kids? And it goes far beyond, obviously, origins, because people can kind of say, well, you know, you don't have to believe certain way for origins in order to get saved. It's not a core doctrine. Well, I'm not sure it isn't the core doctrine. All right. But even granting that for the sake of argument, you say, how then can you be neutral on anything. I mean, think of just the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the hinge of history. That's right. It's the one thing that every <clears throat> single one of us will stand before God and answer to how we, what we did with Jesus, what we did with the resurrected Savior. And that is going to make the difference in our eternity. And so you can't tell you can't be neutral on that. Well, I think even just with Jesus Christ, his own words about creation, his own words about mm -hmm. marriage, mm -hmm. all those things. So if 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 we're going to question that, then we have to question Jesus's very words, and wow. and, and and that that is a road that we definitely don't want to go down. 
And uh, the old uh, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but not not the Messiah. And it's like, then I don't think you've been paying attention to what Jesus was teaching. Yeah, because he's <laughs> and you ask anybody, was Jesus ever did you know is Jesus a good teacher? Yes. Yeah, so would Jesus be a liar? Well, absolutely not. And so, in your view, as an administrator of a K twelve school, does that does that primary directive for Christian education end when they graduate? their senior year of high school. No, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach them that they have access to God 24 seven. We, we want to we help them understand that really, what is the ultimate goal is to be like Jesus Christ, Christ-likeness. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and we want to continue to reinforce all those tools of discipleship. So when they walk out of there, they understand who they are, and what they're going to do with that, you know, and how they can talk to this God and how they can serve this God, you know, because ultimately it's how do we serve a savior? And, uh, um, when they come in out, it's, it's more than an education. It's, it's a way of life. It's thinking it's, it's their entire lifestyle. Do you view the job as done and finished when they graduate? Absolutely not. Um, we're just beginning. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're a step on that path. Uh, we, they're going to, they're going to go to college. They're going to find a mate. They're going to get married. They're going to serve in a local church. We're, we're part of that step. And God brings us in. I've met lots of people. Hey, I went to your school for two or three years, you know, and, um, however long we have them, we, we, we are going to serve those local churches and we're going to serve the home. And if God brings them there, we've got a high responsibility, uh, to teach them everything we know about the scriptures. What has been your experience and, and viewpoint towards Christian college for a young person that, that graduates from your school? Maybe it's been in your church, mm. grew up in a Christian home, maybe did, maybe didn't. All right. But, but that really wants to get serious about preparing to be that kind of leader, whether it be in vocational ministry or some other profession that God would lead them into. Um, how, how have you seen Christian colleges extending and, and, I guess not completing because no, we're yeah, never really sure. done, but but taking it to the next level for those young people. Well, first of all, I think service opportunities in Christian college are extraordinary. All the mission trips and all those different things are just great opportunities. I think, secondly, it's just involvement in local churches, mm. um, just being able to get involved and, and, and go to a ministry. If you come in from a large ministry and you're in a small ministry, the college can reinforce. They're another step in that reinforcement. They are saying the things that your home has said. They're saying the things that the local church has. And you got to study those colleges. I know we've had some conversations about this. Study the philosophy and the mission. And something my former pastor said that I like, look at their grads. Yep. Where are they going? Yep. What are they doing? Um, interview those teachers. Uh, don't go just because it's a it's a, a beautiful place. Hey, we all love the beach, or we all love the mountains, or and some of us may like the farm. I don't know, but go because God has called you to a, a specific area and and pray about it. Seek a multitude of counselors. I love counseling with kids and saying, Hey, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And um and and help direct them that that it's just going to reinforce what's been happening all of their life. All right, so if if Somebody's listening and they say, okay, I'm trying to do this college thing. I'm balancing all these different competing things in my life. Give me a tip. You know, say you're, 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 they're looking for advice, right? 
uh, maybe if even your younger self, if you were to go back and do it mm. again, here's what you would do or, or whatever. How should they set those priorities? What's a tip that you'd give to somebody in those? Okay. First tip is Proverbs 16, three, commit all thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts will be established. Yep. Bathe it in prayer. Number two, safety in a multitude of counselors. Pick the, uh, first of all, start with your parents and then work, talk to your senior pastor, talk to your youth pastor, talk to people you trust. And then finally, go to the schools themselves and be open. God may take you on a path you've never known. So uh, pick a group of schools and look at their philosophy, look at what they offer and go visit, get on campus, visit the classes, talk to the people, talk to the grads, talk to alumni. Um, you're gonna you're making a large decision that could uh, direct the trajectory of your life. You may find your mate there. You're gonna make some very important decisions, and you, if you do all those things, um, you, you you do due diligence. I think the Lord will definitely have His hand in your life. That's awesome advice, and it's so necessary for for people to hear that because what we see is that the college decision you're gonna spend some places hundred thousand dollars. Right. Over four years, you're going to spend more than that. I mean, some some schools is two, three hundred thousand dollars for four years. What are you going to have to show for it at the end of it? This monumental decision that's being made. People will make that decision because of a T-shirt. You're precious in God's eyes, and and respectfully, you're not precious in that roommate's eyes. There's no one that's invested more in you than God and your family and your parents and your pastor, and they're going to give you wise counsel. And remember, this isn't about where your friends are. This is where what God is preparing for you to serve him, not only now, but for eternity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? You don't understand. My pastor and my parents aren't even on Instagram. (laughs) They don't even understand a reel. They don't know how to tweet. All right. (laughs) Neither do they really. (laughs) They're not cool. You know, part, part of the problem is the verse doesn't say, that you ought to go around and shop for a multitude of advice. Mm. Correct. You don't you don't pick the advice. And I think so many people go around and, and they keep asking advice until they hear what they wanted to hear anyway. That's and then good. they go, Oh yeah, multitude of counselors. I finally found someone who told me yeah. what I wanted to hear. Yeah, that's 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 really good. And I think you know it's dangerous ground. And just you know, and if God tells you something, listen and follow it. And you know. I think one of the biggest things that we do and my background, obviously at Maranatha is recruiting. And, um, one of the things that I always try to tell parents, especially is that the decision to go to college is the decision to buy into a process, not a product. The diploma is not really what matters at the end of the day, right? right. Unless you're, you know, you're talking about credentials and what are the, all kinds of industries that require that diploma, but the diploma and what the name on the diploma is, or what the color of the diploma is, doesn't matter. It's the process. That's right. And just like you guys, you know, you're familiar with athletics and everything. Education is a process. And that's really where you have to look at the school decision very carefully because everything is intentional. Even if it's unintentional, in some people's eyes, uh, that has been intentionally set there or is intentionally not addressed. And Jonathan, when you say that Christian education is always, it's still going today, even yeah. after you graduated, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Well, Pastor Ray, it's been a huge pleasure for me to interview you instead of the other way around, because that was plenty of times that that happened. Um, we'll, and we'll get the rest of those off, <laughs> off there. All right. Right. Yeah. But thank you so much for uh, being with us today. 
Um, and uh, praise the Lord for your ministry that you, where you are, Davis. Yeah. Great to be here. Dr. Aarons has an enthusiasm for people that is consistent and contagious. Dr. Handyside lives a different kind of consistent life. His steady leadership in the School of Education inspires future teachers to bring excellence to the classroom and empathy to relationships. Today, we are joined by Dr. David Handyside, Dean of the School of Education at Maranatha. Dr. Handyside lives in Watertown with his wife, Margaret. They've been married for 52 years and have two children and five granddaughters. He's a beloved professor in the School of Education, impacting current and future teachers. His favorite meal is comprised of steak, garlic potatoes, cooked carrots, applesauce, and any kind of pie. Mm. When he's not working to improve the student experience, Dr. Handyside enjoys working outside of the yard and doing other home improvement projects. Dr. Handyside, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. All right. So before we get started with the serious part, I and I'm already hungry hearing yeah. about your favorite meal because that you can invite me over for that anytime, Doc. Uh, we just have a couple of questions for you. All right. So uh, you... You've lived in Watertown now for a couple decades, actually. How long has it mm -hmm. been? Uh, almost 22 years. 22 years in Watertown, Wisconsin. Have you done much traveling outside of the state of Wisconsin? Is there a place <laughs> that you'd like to go that's still on the list that you haven't visited yet? Well, I've been a lot of places. My wife has been with me on some of them, not all of them, because I've traveled a lot for student teaching observations. That's taking me to lots of different states. Sure. And uh, I've been... I've been across the country pretty much. A place where I would want to go that I haven't been. We just went to um, Alaska a couple years ago as a 50 anniversary situation there. I think I'd like to go to the Grand Tetons. There you go. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, never been there. And climb up to the, the, the summit. Uh, that would be challenging. Yeah, I, would, <laughs> I really wouldn't mind doing that, to tell you the truth. So, You're an adventurer. Uh, is that I right? I like to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, maybe someday, maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever let you retire. <laughs> when, when I retire, I think I'll do that. Well, you did retire. I, I know, but. Uh, You're back. <laughs> back. And I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. We would miss you at lunch and uh, certainly the impact that you have on the students. So uh, internationally, is there a place that you would keep on the list that, that you would love to take Margaret and just visit? Interesting question. Yeah. Yes. I've always wanted to go to Switzerland. Uh, I think with our backgrounds, going to the British Isles would be very interesting because that has some connection with my last name and to somewhat to the Scandinavian area because that has connection with Margaret's last name. Okay. But what, what does Handyside mean? What is the derivation? I really don't know. I'd like to go find out. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you just it's, a, it's a fact-finding mission. <laughs> I, was, I was told by a professor from Oxford when I was doing my graduate work, she stopped at my name when she was doing the role the first day and said, where is that person? So I raised oh. my hand and she said, that name is a common name around where I'm from in Wales. Wales. In yeah. Very interesting. All right. So, so maybe you have some some long lost relatives I in the UK. Like to see, yeah. <laughs> like to Very cool. All right. Well, and you've always been a bit athletic, right? We played golf together many times in basketball. You played basketball in college, high school? Uh, I in college I, I made the basketball team as a in my sophomore year as a player. I was injured before the season ever started, so I never played in a game. No doubt would but have I, been but I stayed with the team. 
whole yeah, time. Yeah, no, no doubt would have been yeah. a first-string All-American, probably, in, in, if only in, for in, that injury. In, in, in whose mind, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Career-altering game. And yeah. it wasn't part of the bio, which I was a little bit surprised about, since it's clearly one of the hallmarks of your career, but you were the administrator for my high school all four years of high school in First Baptist in Danville, Illinois. That's correct. That's got to have yes. been a career highlight. For it you. was. It really was a career highlight. In fact, <laughs> being here, being here and working for you right now is is something that I really treasure. Actually, I'm sure you always hoped that that would be the case. <laughs> I n- never dreamed it would be the case, but I- I'm good with Fair it. Enough. I'll tell you that I'm good with it. Fair enough. Well, let's get started with with talking about. It. You've had an extraordinary life and ministry already in your young career. And I think it'd be fun to hear about a little bit of how you got to that level and how God's brought you along. So we're having conversations with people who are dedicated to a life that matters. And people who have that intentionality usually have thought about why they do what they do. And so do you have a a personal mission statement that drives uh, your life? I think... And that's a good question, John. The mission statement to me has always been really centered around my life verse, which is, uh, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. And that verse has been in my mind ever since I was a teenager. And to fulfill that, I think you really have to submit to God, not knowing exactly how that's going to look. But I feel like that guidance has been there um, all the way through college and then in whatever jobs I've had. I started out in college as a Bible major, but switched to education because I could tell that's where God was really using me the most because I worked a lot in camps and uh, worked with children and seemed to have a decent response and also was impressed by other teachers that I saw that were very influential in my life. So tell me about that. You you went to college, you felt that the Lord was leading you into ministry and right. you know what what former phase of ministry that would what that would look like. And so as you went off, you you thought, okay, let's start out with a Bible degree. I think you had a business minor or something like that along actually, the way. Actually, I was. I was a Bible major with a business minor. Which is a great combination <laughs> actually for the, for ministry yeah. preparation. But then uh, what year was it that, that you began to realize maybe it was education more specifically where God would have you serve? After the first semester in college, um, I took a lot of business courses in high school, but in college it just didn't have the same meaning to me. The Bible was very important. I was open to missions or whatever. Um, but I always felt like God could use me even if it wasn't in the pastorate because I had to search my soul and mind, you know, do I really want to be a pastor? Is this what God really wants me to do? And you have those challenges in chapel and all those things. And and I would uh, say I'm open to that, but it was never the thing that God really sent to me is, okay, I'm going to be a pastor. But I still felt like I could be in ministry. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think what was important to me and has been is that I can be anywhere and still be in ministry as long as I'm representing Christ in the right way and I'm in God's Word. So how many years after graduating did you serve as a teacher? I taught for eight years in public school. Did you? What What was your... Uh, junior high math and science. Bless your heart. Although my 
favorite thing was social studies and history. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you always get in the area that wasn't your favorite. But uh, uh, I actually learned that I liked teaching math. Uh, science was fine, but I still, I have a more of a passion for history. Is that right? And yes. so w- w- did you have a specialty in, in your college training or was it just broad field? And- it was elementary education. I was an elementary education major. But my minor, when they had to find one, ended up being social studies. Okay. Because I had a lot of psychology as long as, as well as some history courses. But the opening for the job you found was math and science math and, and science. junior high. So you said, all right, let's roll. Let's roll. <laughs> That's actually quite typical. Okay. If you talk to a lot of teachers, especially back in the day, they ended up not exactly where they thought they were going to be. So is that some advice that you give to education majors is to keep it you know, make sure you, you don't ignore those other subjects. Exactly. When you're an elementary education major, you're going to teach anything. And my my license was uh, first grade through ninth grade. So. Isn't it amazing when you're a kid, adults know, know most everything, but your teacher knows everything. <laughs> There's not anything they don't know. What an amazing status. It is to be a teacher it's in a, somebody's it's life. It's a false status because <laughs> um, you realize when you're a teacher that you don't know. There's a whole lot out there that you really don't know. Right. You don't know what you don't know. Well, the kids don't know that. But the kids don't know that. <laughs> you just have to know more than they know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you do feel just one step ahead. I know at, at different phases in, mm-hmm. in life and career, but uh, what, a, what an awesome career to be involved in in education. It's such a... A future-oriented, hopeful, life-changing kind of a field to be involved in. Did you find it to be that fulfilling when you got out as far as versus your expectations as a a college student in preparation for that? Yes. And I think one of the things that most of us found that we know when we talk about being a teacher, the college experience was, was important and very important, but actually getting in the classroom and when you graduated and became your own teacher, like yourself, that was much better than anything else. And the satisfaction of seeing what happens with young lives is worth it. That's what keeps you going. Uh, The statistics say that about one third of new teachers drop out of the education field within the first three years and up to 50% will drop out after five years. But the ones that stay, stay because they love working with the students. It's not the subject as much as it is the kids. If they make it five years, do they pretty much stick with it? Yes, and they'll stick with it for 20, 30, or 40 years. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Especially in, in Christian education, it seems like uh, the longevity is is amazing. I remember the Millers that taught at First Baptist, and I don't mm-hmm. mean this the wrong way, but they seemed old when I was a senior in high school, <laughs> and they're still teaching. They're still teaching. And yes. it's amazing. And of course, when I say old, I mean, they were probably younger than I am now, but... Uh, when you're in high school, anybody over 30 is ancient, you know. But uh, I just appreciate so much the the faithfulness that that's represented in somebody mm-hmm. that dedicates themselves to it. Because let's face it, I mean, education is fulfilling and it's got a, a high degree of satisfaction in some ways, but it's not lucrative financially necessarily either. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that we uh, we have to appreciate. So. You, at some point, then kind of transitioned from the classroom into administration. When, how did that happen? Well, when I was teaching at Cisna Park, Illinois, in uh, sixth grade. Uh, the, is that a Chicago suburb, or where is that? 
That's no, it's not anywhere near <laughs> Chicago. Okay, it's <laughs> actually north of Danville and Hoopston. Okay, it's a more of a very rural area. It's kind of a dead zone, actually. There's not a area. lot going on in central a lot, Illinois. A lot of farmers up yeah. there. Okay, and small communities. At any rate, while I was teaching there, uh, the superintendent came to me and said, "We'd like you to prepare to be." an administrator of the elementary school because the administrator was an elderly lady and she was going to retire. So that's how I started my graduate work in administration and supervision at the University of Illinois. Because that's where he was going on, working on his doctorate. And this was not an online program no, at that time. No, you had, no. To, you had to drive there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but this particular superintendent was a believer. He had come all the way to the college where I went to to recruit actually my wife before me. And I ended up there as well at that particular school uh, later. And um, so I started my program, but then the the lady retired earlier than they expected, so I wasn't finished yet. So they had uh -oh. to hire somebody else. Mm. So I was I had my master's in administration for one year while I was still teaching at that school. So, but at that point, you'd already kind of gotten the idea that you know, that would be the path. And yes. so you kept an eye out for another opportunity. I kept my eye out for another opportunity, mm -hmm. did a couple of interviews, but also there were a lot of Christian schools starting about that time. It was in the uh, mid seventies, 1970s. Right. And um, I finished my program at the University of Illinois in 1977, but there were, there was a lot of need for uh, administrators at Christian schools at that time, administrators that had background. So, uh, I had some interviews there and ended up in Danville. I had an interview in Michigan and one in Danville. So talk about the the difference between, so a lot of people talk about, uh, I'm an educator, so I'm going to stay in the classroom. And then there's the the talk about moving from, from a teacher into administration. It's a completely different kind of role. It is. So yes. what, what, other than the the changing dynamics of the Christian schools, what drove you to let's get into administration here? It wasn't because I was tired of teaching. I really enjoyed teaching. Uh, it was the idea that that seemed to be what God wanted me to go to the next level was, if, that you can call that a level of doing something more in that kind of a leadership situation. And my wife was very supportive, and actually she was one that encouraged me to do that uh, because I did like the classroom. And I think a lot of administrators who are administrators wish they were still in the classroom somewhat. Uh, in, in the business world, there's the Peter principle where, where people get elevated uh, maybe a little beyond their capability. But I've noticed over the years that in education, the, the people who are master teachers, who really perfect the craft, actually are very effective administrators, especially in leading the faculty team, because they've kind of figured out what it takes mm. and... You know, I, I think it's almost a little bit different than the business world. Just because a guy is a good salesman doesn't mean he's going to be a good manager. In fact, they're right. kind of different characteristics. <laughs> but in an education, an educational administrator who isn't much of a teacher doesn't necessarily have that much to offer in, in the educational administration arena as well. I think it's important to keep a hand really in both, wouldn't you say? Yes, I do. And I, I agree with you 100%. I, I advise people, students for going in education that want to do their master's to have taught at least three or four years before they try to do that. It means something entirely different when you have taught for a length of time and you go back and get your, your graduate degree, your master's degree for administration. 
John and, Brock gave me that yeah. advice when I came on in, in the administration. He said he always taught a class for two reasons. He said, I want to keep a connection with the students and that will help me keep my heart and passion here, mm -hmm. you know, connected in with the student experience, but also because he wanted to maintain the respect of the faculty. And, you know, he was the leader of the faculty, but he wanted to, to maintain his own fitness to be mm -hmm. seen as a leader of, of teachers. You need to be a master teacher yourself. And I see that as well in Dr. Licht, mm -hmm. that, that he is a very well-respected teacher. And in some ways, you kind of hate to take somebody like that out of the classroom as much, but uh, I know that he would absolutely quit if I told him he couldn't teach a, a class every semester himself. And in some ways, that's not enough, I suppose. So as you made that transition, you, you made a comment about there were a lot of Christian schools starting in the, in the 70s. And I, I don't know if a lot of people that didn't live through it understand exactly what that was like living through the early days of the Christian school movement in the 1970s. That's really when a ton of Christian schools were started. What, what in your view, as you lived through that, what, what in your experience really led to that? You know, what was, who was behind that, that movement? Well, you could say who was behind it in one sense, and you look at different people in different areas of the country, but I think it was driven more by cultural circumstances. And that is, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a definitely definite cultural shift in the country, uh, not only in the way people dressed and thought and talked, but it was, it was called the sexual revolution. Yeah. And uh, there was a, the Vietnam War was still going on. There was a lot of demonstrations against that situation. So there was a lot of upheaval, upheaval. I think we've seen that in the last couple of years. It reminded me of that time period as well. And that drove believers to say, let's get out of the public schools because the public schools are being infiltrated with a lot of philosophy that was definitely anti-God. Mm. The decisions by course to take prayer out of the school of the decisions that made it hard to say anything about God in school situations and public schools uh, drove that situation. And I also know, to be honest, down south, some of this that was driven by the southern uh, section of our country had to do with racism. Mm. And the integration so, of schools integration actually of was, schools, yes. mm -hmm. was viewed as a, a bad thing. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh -huh. uh, some Christian schools were started for that basis, which was not a good one. So talk to me about what it was like in a public school prior to that Supreme Court decision <clears throat> and I guess your eight years of experience in that in that mm -hmm. system are probably very different than what it would look like uh, as an experience as an educator in a public school today. Yeah, it was different actually because it was in the early 70s when I was I graduated from college in 1969 started teaching 6970. And uh the first teaching job I had was kind of in a rough school, it was junior high. However, the expectations for teachers and what they should and shouldn't do was not the same as it is now. Uh, I, I would talk about my faith, didn't know any better. and uh, Why wouldn't you? And yeah. not getting trouble. Right. Uh, and in one school in Cisna Park, for example, I had my Bible on my desk and I read a verse for the day. One family, one parent complained. Otherwise, the uh, principal and the administration said, I like what you're doing. Right. 
And what was student discipline like at that time? Well, you could discipline a little bit more than you can now, although that was the beginning of you can't touch me. Sure. And uh, so there was paddling that went on sometimes. Is that right? Yes. In the in public, public school. school. And uh, uh, discouraged, but actually it, it occurred in public school. But, but I guess I, I'm asking more so in terms of student behavior. What was that like? It depended on the families. And uh, behavior at that time, there was less disrespect, I guess you'd say, uh, to teachers. Uh, although it was happening on a greater scale than it did, say, in the early 60s or in the 50s. So political upheaval, race tension, uh, sexual revolution, those cultural issues sound pretty familiar to yes, our current they do. day. Yes, they do. Do you, do you sense um, a resurgence possible here? I mean, sometimes uh, those things represent an opportunity for a bit of a a revival of Christian education and, and maybe an opportunity to remake the case for, for why we need to have mm-hmm. a, a Christian worldview that's, that's uh, permeating the education that's being provided. That's a good leading question because I, <laughs> I see that, I've seen that in the last couple of years. I've also seen a more consciousness by uh, believers in the church community as to say there's a need for my children to go to a Christian school where there's Christian education. Yeah, and now, certainly homeschooling. We've and seen homeschooling a big rise. Has, has come into that, and, and that wasn't prevalent until the 1980s, really. Yeah, I, we've talked a lot about the protectionist instinct. And mm-hmm. in our higher ed administration meetings, we talk about that in the board meetings that there is a, I mean, being a parent is a protective process, certainly, but nowadays the in- instinct is uh, so uh, keen to keep my kids away from the things that are going to harm them. And whichever side of the political aisle you're on, that's the -hmm. sentiment. And I I think there's been a huge rise in homeschooling. I haven't seen as commensurate a rise in enrollments at Christian day schools. Uh, No. Some states, but what are you seeing as you go out around? That's true, I think. But also what's, what's actually made that visible now more the rise in population in Christian schools is the voucher system. Uh, vouchers have really increased the enrollment of a lot of schools. And that's yeah. because people wanted to be there, but didn't want to pay the money for it or couldn't afford right. it. Right. And conceptually, vouchers make sense. I pay this money. It's my tax money. What's wrong with it? You know, I'm not going to the public school where my tax dollars would have gone. Mm-hmm. So why not be able to divert at least some of that money to the school of my choice it's giving more people, as you said, more economic classes of people the opportunities to pursue private education that more aligns with their values, whatever mm-hmm. those values may be. So it is a neutral process. It's not a faith um, establishment clause violation type of a process, and the courts have affirmed that over and over again. But there are only a few states, and more and more are being added, but there are only a few states that actually allow it. So conceptually, it certainly makes sense. But it has its pros and cons as well, right? Mm, I mean, you right. you see some adjusting demographics uh, within the school system in terms of it's not just the church families anymore, and uh, you have to keep an eye on that on, on the the composition of the student body to make sure that you're truly maintaining a Christian environment and not importing all the worst elements that you were trying to 
um, avoid in, in the process. But I also see that there's some some tension maybe on the the administration as well. I know First Baptist there really was no voucher option in in Danville or in Illinois. Uh, I don't I still think there's there's not a, a voucher system uh, in the state at this point. Here in Wisconsin, we have that. As you go around and look at schools, maybe you've been to the school before they jumped into vouchers. Then you go back a few years later, they've been in the program. Do you notice a lot of changes or or what are the warning signs to kind of look out for in that? I mode? haven't noticed a lot of changes. It depends on what the requirements are. There's a lot of paperwork involved in getting the vouchers uh, and whether they're going to uh, recognize and respect your particular philosophies or worldview, mm. which so far the courts have upheld that that kind of the thing that you're supposed to do. Uh, what the problem is, is when you, I think when you get a lot of people in your school that not necessarily were there before and they come in for the wrong reasons sometimes, uh, does it change your philosophy? Does it change how you operate? And does it change the atmosphere? And uh, it can change the atmosphere. You can also change the atmosphere for a student. Right. And uh, if you have too many in your school that have a rebellious spirit toward what you're actually trying to accomplish, then that's not going to work. However, we, we saw at Danville, and uh, I think it's still happening in other schools where students came in and they found Christ. It made a difference in their lives. Families were influenced because of that. Uh, I used to go visit families of students in our school that made decisions or just try to visit them uh, regularly in, in part of my calling. And that went a long way to uh, helping them understand that the church loves them and there right. are people there for them. Right. And they supported you. I, I always think that within the student body, what I look for in the health of a Christian school is who who are the cool kids? <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> who Who's... Who's popular and elevated within the student body? And I've seen that even here at Maranatha over the years. If a certain kind of group that that has a little bit more of a rebellious spirit to it is is popular, that's one dynamic. If if it's people that are, you know, wholeheartedly serving the Lord and and wanting to do what's right, that's a totally different dynamic. And you can sense the spirit within the student mm -hmm. body pretty quickly into the start of a year. And uh, but but the nice thing is it's not it's not a completely uh, lost cause. There's something you can do about it. And mm -hmm. the influence that you have in education is such a tremendous ministry opportunity. Let me say this about that too. The faculty you have at any school, no matter whether it's a Christian school or not, is key to the philosophy of that school. And they can help develop strong young leaders that are coming up in the school. Uh, but they have to be not rebellious themselves. And if you have dedicated faculty, uh, your school can stay in the right spot much easier. Yeah, as an administrator, I'm sure you had those opportunities to feel a little bit like, is this person totally with me? Or is there an yeah. undermining that's going on behind the scenes versus somebody who's wholeheartedly supportive and you know is just in line with mm -hmm. with the ministry? And and even just the, the style of the ministry. I mean, there... There's a culture to every institution, and uh, and it's certainly important that everybody be on board with that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a tremendous uh, privilege, one of the great honors of of my uh, career, 
was uh, having a, a part in 2019 of being able to confer an honorary doctorate on you for your lifetime of achievement in ministry. And, you know, what we said that day is, is just as true today, how honored we are to have the privilege to serve together. And I'm glad God get, has given us this time. Uh, it's your, your ministry and influence on my life has helped me uh, to, to who has molded who I've become. And as a result, uh, is really a lifelong lasting impact. And uh, I just thank you for that and uh, for your faithfulness every day. Well, thank you so much, Matt, Jonathan. And it's been an honor for me to be here. It really has. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. To connect with Dr. Aaron's or Faith Baptist School or Church, go to faithdavison.com. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. For more information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.